So, a Jewish rabbi, a Muslim imam, and a Christian preacher walk into a podcast. It sounds like a joke, but it's really a friendship. I am Imam Omar Shaheed of Masjid As-Salam. I'm Rabbi Jonathan Case of Beth Shalom Synagogue. And I am Reverend Ellen Fowler Skidmore of Forest Lake Presbyterian Church. All of us gathered today in Columbia, South Carolina to welcome you to our podcast, Abraham's Table. In our previous discussion about Satan or Shaitan, we discovered some similarities and some differences in how the three of us believe and talk about human nature. Is human nature good or evil? If human nature is good, how can there be so much evil? If our nature is evil, where does the good come from? How do our three faiths talk about sin? And how do we deal with the sin or evil that separates us from God, ourselves, and each other? And what does that redemption or reconciliation mean in each faith tradition? Join us as we talk about human nature, sin, and redemption. Welcome to Abraham's Table. I think I wanted to start because the, the last time we were talking, uh, and as I was listening and editing the one on Satan, two things converged in my, in my memory as I listened to the two of you. And one was in our live podcast, uh, I don't remember which one of you, we talked about if we took all of humanity and we put them in scales and we put the good people on one side and the bad people on the other, that the, the good people would so far outweigh and, and I, I do believe that, and I want to believe that, but there was a piece of unease there for me. And then in the Satan podcast, Jonathan, I think you told an old um, uh, Talmudic story? Hasidic story. Hasidic yeah. story, and I'll bumble this so you'll have to correct me. A good man went to God and said, take away all of my evil impulse, and God took away the evil impulse from humankind, and, and then suddenly there were no buildings built, there was no striving, no... Uh, babies born, no businesses being built, that, that somehow that, that impulse, the, the, and I, I understand and, and, there, and see the truth that it is a both and, it's two sides of the same coin. That, but there was something in there that I just couldn't come to peace with, and I am not sure, and so that's what made me think about coming at it again. I, I think, I don't think, that that impulse, that which causes us to build or achieve or have sex, that that impulse is evil. I would say all gifts from God are good, but human beings are seemingly unlimited in our ability to use a good gift for our own selfish or evil purpose. So like uh, God gave us this amazing gift to, for surgery and for chemotherapy or for medical treatments, which are all good, but we have gotten ourselves to the point where people are not allowed to die with dignity. Nuclear power creates this amazing ability to create energy, and yet it's also the means by which we may destroy ourselves. So sin both personally and all together as a collective, is often a good 
that's just overreached. So I guess I guess where I wanted to start was, for me, human nature is not good or bad, created absolutely in the Christian frame, in God's image, created good, but that what exists now is much more on a continuum, that even the good people are not all good, that sin infects even our best intentions. I think there's a lot of truth in what you're saying, and want to tack on a question which is a philosophical conundrum, which is, is there any such thing as altruism? And I think this is a religious question as well, besides being a philosophical one. What is altruism? Altruism is when you do something purely for the sake of doing it with no thought of reward or consequence to it. True altruism. Is it possible that human beings can rise to the level of being so altruistic that if we see a poor person, say, just as an example, if we see a poor person and we give them food or we give them money, we give them what they're asking for in order to alleviate their pain, and they smile at us, right? Once they've smiled at us and we say to ourselves, that was a job well done, have we then <laughs> destroyed the altruistic act? Or even as a random thought as we're doing it, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to do it as part of my religious tradition. So, so my, my first question is, is there such a thing as altruism? And if there is not, doesn't that inherently mean that all human beings are a bridge, an amalgam between this good and evil impulse? See, I would say if, if I do something good, and I would say the goal is not to think of myself, to do it for someone else because of the need there or, or not let it reflect on me but but that it, rather than say well i've failed i've ruined my altruistic act that i it's more honest to say every time i do something good it is both and it's an attempt to serve god and it serves myself and the only way i move beyond completely serving myself is to acknowledge and to own my own self-serving nature I think that's very honest to, to, to acknowledge that they both exist and they coexist inside of us. And the things that we do that are God-willing good are the things that ultimately make us look and feel as if we're acting in harmony with what God expects and wants of us. And I'm going to segue into something that we spoke about last week and in the previous week as well. When we talked about the Garden of Eden, and we talked about the two trees in the Garden of Eden. We talked about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was a setup. You said you thought it was a setup. I believe it was a I setup. I said I didn't think it was a setup. Right. So why create the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the first instance? If is, was it, so You can't have a temptation if there's no temptation built into human beings to start with. And here God puts it there for what purpose? If not, to, if not to tempt it, to take it, to engage human beings in the ability to be able to harness the power of our impulses, plural. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Because it, it hits in the direction of, uh, oh, let me speak of this. It says tree when it talks about good and evil. When it talks about trees, when it talks about, in the Quran, when it talks about, it doesn't say tree of good and evil, it says the tree, but it says eat from wherever you want. In other words, the plentiful, the bountiful thing, but there is a prohibition, okay? 
and that prohibition is not as much as the things that we are allowed to do. But it's a developmental process there. Obedience to God, your free will, you have a choice. Obedience to God, I gave you free will, I gave you free will, I'm going to give you choices. The choices, the prohibitions, that's where we find the sin in the prohibition. The other things there in abundance, the good. But the things that we are prohibited to do are small compared to, again, the things that we are allowed to do. Now, obedience to God is the key there for us and our religion. Free choice, we can be induced or influenced, and we see that that inducement or the influences will come from outside, not from the nature, because we talked about the, the Satan or the Shaitan or the serpent. We believe that human nature is good. This is what the Quran tells us. We're not satisfied when we are oppressing or when we are suppressing the good qualities of the human nature. We run into problems when we run into those prohib- prohibitions. See, I would say that human nature, humans were created good, that our nature at creation, at the God's intention is good, but that, that not all influences come from outside that we are, as human beings, compromised. One of the Presbyterian founders, John Calvin, called human beings idol factories, Mm -hmm. that we are so adept at creating other things to worship that, that the temptation may come from outside, but it may very well come from inside, and it's that I might know better, or I might be able to serve myself. Or I could do something really nice for somebody and make myself look very good. (laughs) So that evil impulses come from many directions, but I think some of them come from the essential, that essential nature that does give us a choice. And I would say the choice is there. God didn't set us up to fail, but God put the choice there because there is no such thing as love without free choice. Love that is forced is called abuse. Mm -hmm. So there's no such thing as obedience unless there is a choice. Obedience without a choice is called oppression. And I utterly agree with you when you say that God did not set us up to fail. I think God set us up to succeed, and which is why within Judaism Mm -hmm. there is no original sin. That eating of the fruit of the tree of knowledge was actually an advancement of humanity to be able to meet God, and to use your words, to love God fully and wholly individually without coercion and without being a zombie. And what I mean by, when I say, when I'm using the word zombie, I'm referring to living in the Garden of Eden as basically a robot, going to sleep, eating, going to sleep, and eating, but rather having free will to be able to find God and find one another independently. So how does the Jewish tradition then make sense of the fact that they were punished for eating the apple? Well, first of all, I'd ask if it was an apple. Or, yes, sorry, eating. Mm. (laughs) Yes, my kindergarten pictures all come (laughs) rushing to mind. So eating of the fruit, there was consequence. I would argue, and I'm not going to speak for all Judaism now, I would argue that it wasn't a sin at all, but rather it was freedom. Freedom to choose to be with God, freedom to choose the dark path as well. And when we choose the right path, we exult. 
And when we choose the wrong path, as the Imam said, there's something inherently wrong, and we know deep down in our soul that something's wrong. Mm -hmm. And do we have the fortitude and the strength to be able to write it? But without that knowledge, without having consumed that fruit, would we even have the ability to be able to retrack and regain our center and our self? There would be none. But God didn't say, good job. Glad that you did what I told you not to do. He said, now that you've eaten of the tree, your life is going to be much harder. Now that's the, the, that's the that's biblical the, story. The biblical story. Right. In the Quran, we don't believe in an original sin. Hmm. We believe in an original innocence. And if you notice, if you get the picture of the garden, we may go back and say, oh, that garden existed a long time ago. The garden is really a scene for what's taking place today. This is how we believe. What's taking place mm -hmm. now and what's taking place in the future. And God created us. He put us in the garden. The garden suggests its cultivation. It suggests its growth mm -hmm. and responsibility, etc. But we don't see a disobedience in the Quran until the serpent came and suggested. And they took on the suggestions of the saint. But it wasn't automatically, if we study the nature, the baby comes into the world innocent. No baby is born thinking it's going to be a robber banker <laughs> or kill his mother. That comes in from environment. See, that's so funny because in the Christian tradition and in the Presbyterian church, we baptize infants, which is our symbol for being put right with God, something God does for us. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I say to the parents is, they do. They come into the world, and I have three, and they look absolutely perfect. And then they don't get to the point where they can, where you know what's in there until they can get up and run around, and they begin to be able to talk. So God gives you about two and a half or three years to fall in love with them so that you don't kick them out the door the, when, they, when their nature begins to come out. Because I would say from the beginning, I, there's, I have yet to see a child who says, listen, Mom. I know you don't feel well, and you're really tired, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning. I'll wait. Listen, I'll wait. Don't bother yourself. The, we, are, we come into the world saying, I want what I want, and I want it now, and I want it warm, and I really don't care if it's 2 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. That's nature, though. That's nature. Yes, and through that giving and sacrifice, that's passed on normally to the child. Through the, through the parent sacrifice yeah, you're talking about? It, yes, to the mother and the, mm -hmm. mother and the child. Usually that obligates that child morally, if not physically, materially, to want to give something back, to have compassion, That's to have love. That the child would develop compassion because of the love of the parent. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yes. And I, I would say I certainly hope so. Well, let me just but say something. But it is a choice that yes. is often not returned uh, and our children often said, I remember one of my children at 13, <laughs> you are ruining my life. Was I said, sweetie, I hadn't gotten good yet. Yeah, but have, <laughs> did, did, uh, did that child have children yet? Nope. They'll come back to you. That's called divine payback. <laughs> They'll come back to you. But I remember my mother, she told being uh, the last set of twins in the family. Last set of twins in the family. How many sets of twins? It was uh, two sets in Your the family. Your poor mother. And, and, but she said, uh, and 12, number 11 and 12. 
I was number 11, she was 12. But anyway, she told the doctor that he could have both of us. <laughs> but shortly after that, <laughs> my sister said, after labor pains, after everything, she was holding the both of us <laughs> and giving us that compassion and love. Mm -hmm. And you know, I told my children, I said, I know you love your mother more, a little bit differently from the way you love me, because my mother had something on my father. But it's something <laughs> about that, mother, that motherly love, that mother's love, that gives us a foundation for compassion. Well, and the, that is what the Christian scriptures say. We love because God first loved us. Mm -hmm. And that's what I tell those parents at baptism. So your child learns to love because you love. That's how we come to know who God is. And yet what we know is that children in a family can be raised exactly the same way. And one will accept the love and respond in compassion and kindness and generative love. And another, it washes over and washes off like water off a duck's back. Mm -hmm. And usually I think you're going to find some influences coming from somewhere else, not from the home. And even if not, it shows how little control we have over human nature. There are parts of the self which are determined by not nature and not nurture, but just something innate that happens within the child that makes them go off in a particular direction. And the, prob the problem with that compassion, and I hate to point this out because it's a, it sounds such a perfect paradigm, but the problem with the, the when you give compassion, you'll get compassion back, is that when it doesn't work, there's self-recrimination and blame. Mm -hmm. And it may not always be that, as one quite rightly says, that there just may be other forces at work within the individual. Right. So I would say that the mother or the parent, or in the case in which we're talking, God offers compassion, knowing that human beings have the freedom to choose, and knowing that some of us will choose to serve ourselves or to serve some evil, that the compassion, the covenant love that God shows us is not dependent on our ability to be obedient enough or to choose or to, to respond in a way that is perfect enough to warrant God's love, but that in fact that is the most remarkable good news of all, that God continues in God's steadfast love and compassion for us even when we serve ourselves. Sure. In a macrocosm, you certainly can argue that we, as humanity, have, would be deserving of what the world received during Noah's time or during Sodom's time because of the terrible genocides that have been perpetrated throughout the 20th century and certainly well done before. Mm -hmm. And so the, the compassion of God to withhold yes. that judgment, to withhold that, and to allow us the ability to be able to redeem ourselves and to be able to find our way out of the hellish conditions that we have created is certainly a mark of God's absolute and utter patience. Let me go right back to something else that's in our nature that the Quran, our religion teaches us, that that's repentance. Repentance mm -hmm. is in our nature. So it says in the Quran, it doesn't give us a picture that Adam and his wife were just going about disobeying God. It gives us a picture that, that influence came in. And that influence came in, and uh, they made wrong choices. But then their nature wasn't comfortable with that. Their souls were not comfortable, comfortable with that. So they turned to God, 
and repented. And God accepted their repentance. And God tells the children of Adam, O ye children of Adam, let not the shaitan or Satan seduce you as he seduced your parents to get them out of the garden. We don't see being put in the earth, put down on earth as a punishment because God said in the beginning he was going to create a ruler for the earth. So we don't see that as being a put down. We see disobedience and repentance as key factors there. Choice, obedience, disobedience, repentance. And I was fascinated Mm -hmm. that in the Quran that humankind repented and was forgiven because that's just not a part of the biblical story. There's sorrow, but it's more like the sorrow of a child being caught. Mm -hmm. You know, I told you not to do, and they're not sad that they ate the cookies. They're just sad they got caught eating the cookies, and now they're in trouble. That's my read of those Genesis narratives. Sure, and even looking to uh, early on in the story of creation where God perceives Cain's intent on murdering his brother, he clearly issues a warning and says, sin crouches at the door, but you have the power to overcome it. And even, or I should say, despite that warning, Cain does not listen to the admonition. Instead, takes his freedom literally and kills his brother. Yeah. And and so I think in the Christian frame, and I, I'm hesitant like you are, I can't speak for everybody, but my teaching would say we are not able to overcome sin on our own. We are not able to redeem ourselves. Then, And the way in which it makes sense to me is like there's always a point at which we have the freedom to choose. It's a little bit like an addiction, right? So nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to become an alcoholic. But they begin to make choices that put them out of control and that serve their human nature or serve that addiction, that drink or that drug. And after a point... And nobody's ever clear where it is. Originally, I'm in control of it. But there's some point past which the weights tip, and now suddenly I am no longer in charge, but it is the substance that drives me. Yes. So you can see an alcoholic or a drug mm. addict, but you can't actually touch them. It's almost like they're encased in plastic because the addiction is that which drives. And the Christian tradition would say, we are infected by sin, so that at some point we cannot save ourselves, that we need intervention from outside. Once someone has offered us a hand, as in the recovery process, then some of our choice is restored. But until then, it's like being stuck in the bottom of a deep hole. I can jump and jump and jump, but I cannot get myself out. I've got to have a hand up, and then I decide, one, if I want to leave the hole, and two, if I'll accept the help and do something different instead of fall right back in. Well, let me just add one point to that, which you said very, very excellently said, is that it says in Adam, when God said, did I not forbid you this tree and tell you that Satan or Shaitan was an enemy? And they said, oh, our Lord, we have wronged our own souls. Mm-hmm. If you do not forgive us and have mercy on us, because you've got collateral <laughs> consequences coming into, into play there. It, it said, we should certainly be among the losers. So turning back to God, yes, even the person who is an addict or hooked on that, they're not comfortable in that situation because I've talked to 
several of them, when they are somewhat straight sober, they don't want that situation. But again, they have to give themselves to something bigger and greater to come out of those conditions and situations. Because until they do, they believe that this is normal, that to be drunk at 10 o'clock in the morning, everybody does it. That's what every alcoholic will tell you. I'm not yeah. doing anything anybody else isn't doing. Yeah. May not be. <laughs> There's some who, who socialize in those areas. But again, I have talked to those who have walked away and have walked away and have been gone for years away from that. Yeah. And they said, I had to make up my mind that this is not something that I want to do. Then they sought the path of progress from the religion and from other areas. But the path of progress, habits that were positive, ha habits that were more contributing to proper human growth and development that they found in religion and that they found in other principles, you know. Yeah, there's a lot here then. Within the context of Judaism, I'm just going to splay this into two bits for a moment. Mm -hmm. we, we imagine that there are two sorts of sins. One kind of sin is a sin against God, mm -hmm. which doesn't hurt or affect any other human being. Mm -hmm. And then there's a sin against other human beings, which doesn't necessarily affect God, although it will on a theological plane. But in the second instance, well... Let me take tackle, tackle the easier one first. In the first instance, where it's a sin against God, God is, as you quite rightly indicated in Christianity, and I believe in Islam it's the same as, same as well, we tell God how we have fallen short, and God being forbearing and forgiving says, all right. As we say in Hebrew, you've opened your heart, you have asked for forgiveness, it's yours, you got it. But the second more complex one is a sin where we have harmed other people. And Judaism is very specific here, where we turn to God and we say, please forgive me for slugging Fred. And, and uh, in our theology, God says, why are you talking to me? Talk to Fred. <laughs> Is yeah. that is that in, in, that, in the Talmud? Not, that's, that's not a quote. No, no. But that's but that but that is a part of our our theological yeah. basis. That when we've harmed another human being, what makes us right with God is what makes us right with that human being whom we have harmed. Hmm. And that's really a vital piece of our of our theology mm -hmm. and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And it's I guess it's tied up with the whole idea of justice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a direct New Testament parallel that says, before you come to worship me, go and, and settle your argument. Mm -hmm. But the Christian tradition has traditionally separated sin into two camps, but they're slightly different camps. So one would be sin little s, and that is what I do, my own choices, my own evil choices to serve myself or to lie or to kill or to steal that breaks the law individually. And the second is a sin, capital S, and that is when the collective sin gets baked into the whole, and that's that institutional injustice. Mm -hmm. That is the racism. That is the war. That is larger than any one person can take on. It's a collective sin. It's the Nuremberg trials. I was just, I was just following orders, right? Mm -hmm. So there's sin, little s, which is what the church has mostly capitalized in because we don't want to challenge the, the powers that be. 
so everybody makes their own little list of sins and usually you know the ones I pick are the ones that I'm pretty sure I don't do so I really capitalize on the ones that you do but the, but we've not been courageous at all in talking about sin capital S which is that much larger corporate capital yeah. S just a, just a little injection on forgiveness mm-hmm. it is God says if you or the prophet said that God said that you cannot expect forgiveness from God unless you practice forgiveness to others. Mm-hmm. So there's a connection in there. We have to be forgiven. If we want God to forgive us, we have to be forgiven. We say the same. Yeah. It's very closely aligned with the whole idea of a Matthew day, right? Because God clothes the naked, because God feeds the hungry. Yeah. That's our responsibility to do as well. Right. So I just want to add just a little, one little point in reference to human nature again. In Islam, we believe the human nature is created in excellence, not the default. We believe that because of choice, we have that critical area there. But there's always forgiveness that comes. But we also believe that sin is anything that oppresses the human potentials for excellence in the family, for excellence in the society. So anything that oppresses, that uh, boards out those areas, Islam sees those things as sinful. Do both of, would both of you say that it is possible for humankind to choose good on their own? To, I forget exactly how Jonathan says it, I've lost my train of thought here, but the, that it is possible for us to redeem ourselves, to be holy enough. Absolutely. If it weren't possible, where would that leave us without the hope and the possibility that we could find redemption and forgiveness for ourselves in the eyes of God and for ourselves in our own eyes and for the size in the eyes of our fellow human being, um, it would re- rather be a hopeless situation where, yeah. why, why bother? Yeah. See, There's a point in the Quran which talks about the, the, the Iblis or the Shaitan deceiving or causing, causing Adam and his wife to fall. He said, I'm going to bring all of your people under my sway, except those who are sincere and purified. And he admits that he can't get the sincere ones who give themselves to God, and uh, who give themselves to God, and who will seek uh, redemption, who will strive to make progress in their life by recognizing the wrong, recognizing the right. Mm -hmm. So if we didn't have that, what are we, why are we religious? (laughs) Why Why do we have hope? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Christian answer would be, no, we are not able to redeem ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that that is the point at which we find ourselves on our knees, recognizing we are not able, but God is able. And that is where, for Christians, then Christ comes in. Christ is that redeemer, the one who offers the hand, who enables us to begin to reclaim our birthright, which is the ability to choose to worship God alone. Mm-hmm. So in Christ, we don't save ourselves. We're not able to make enough choices to be holy, but we don't choose God. God chooses us. Mm-hmm. And in the person of Jesus Christ, in the Christian frame, we are redeemed for new life to begin again, to be able to choose again. So in Islam, you'll find us prostrating. <laughs> Putting that forehead, (laughs) submitting to God that you are the most high, you are the most worthy. I have nothing except 
what you give, what you give. And uh, we turn to God, and, and then we commit ourselves to following God and following God's plan in our scripture and in, our, in the guidance that God gives us. So we believe that the human being can get up, but he has to give himself, herself completely to God mm-hmm. and to God's purpose and way. And we find that in our scripture. What I'm about to say about Judaism, I can contradict in two moments with something else that Judaism is, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. And this is going to come across as perhaps a little bit heretical to, a, to some of the listeners. To Jewish listeners or to who? Everybody. Okay. All right. Prepare yourself, Omar. <laughs> so we pray. We pray for health, well-being. We pray for other people. We pray for our government. We pray for ourselves. We pray for so much. But the question is asked by the sages many 2,000 years ago, does God pray? And they answer, yes, God does pray, which opens up a whole hmm. series of issues about the freedom of humanity and God hoping and praying for us that we will make the right decisions and the right choices. Very powerful construct, especially when you consider the idea of what we're talking about a little while ago with the utter inhumanity that humanity has delivered on one another, that perhaps in those instances, God actually cries. Oh, I believe God cries. We, we, we don't accept that God has human characteristics. We believe that God, knowing in the beginning how he constructed life for us, we don't believe that God is short-sighted. Everything has been planned. It says that God planned, man, the human being planned. But God has already planned. We plan on top of God's plan. Our plans run out. Our plans exhaust themselves. God's plan keeps on unfolding. So I'm going back to something the rabbi said earlier. Without hope, why do we have hope? We believe intrinsically that the world can be better. And I'm going back to a struggle. I know you can go back to the Jewish struggle, you can go back to the woman's struggle, but I'm going back to the struggle of the slaves in this country that believed that what was was not going to always be. Mm-hmm. Yes. Believed that there was a better time coming. That's where we are today. And if we could mm-hmm. capture that spirit and lock it in and work for uh, the betterment of society, then that's the little thing I'm just going to drop on that. You know, I, I see the, you laughing. I see I, you laughing. I've got to throw something in here. When, okay. you, when you say that God plans and man plans, there's an old Yiddish expression. How old it is, I don't know, but it goes like this. Man und God lacht, which means man plans, humanity plans, and God laughs. <laughs> yeah. I like that. When you come to the hope, that there's a story that means a lot to me personally. It, it, it describes my experience. And it, it is a parable that Jesus told in Matthew's Gospel, 13th chapter, about wheat and weeds. Mm-hmm. Did I say this one before? I don't remember. But the, the parable goes, uh, there's a, a, a landowner who sent his slaves out to put sow seeds, wheat in the field. And the seeds came up, and lo and behold, it was wheat and weeds. And the servants came back and said, we don't know what happened. We put out wheat, and now there's also weeds. Should we go through and pull up the weeds? And the landowner says, no, don't go pull the weeds, because if you pull the weeds now, you'll pull the weed up with it. Let it all grow together. 
and at the end we'll go through and we'll we'll go through the field and we'll cut the weeds and we'll gather those and burn them and then we'll gather the wheat and take it into the barn and jesus told that story as a as a judgment story at the end of time that what is now would not be that there would be a reckoning but i think it's also a powerful image for me personally of how my own existence is that i am such a mix of wheat and weeds if you try to pull up the weeds but the wheat will come up with it. One of my personnel committee members said, you know, one thing, when you hire a staff person, you hire them and you hire them because of their skills and their experience and all those skills and all those experience come, that's the good news. The bad news is the whole person shows up. So, <laughs> you know, I am just a mix of wheat and weeds. And until I'm willing and able to say this is who I am, there's very little incentive for me to ask God to, to pull the weeds mm -hmm. or to, to hope that there will be a time where I will be weed-free. You know, that's beautiful. And our meeting, our coming together, is speaking to hope. It's speaking to a better life, more unity, more struggle against injustice. I'm, I'm talking about the three of us. Mm -hmm. I see... I see you as a, <laughs> as a, a reverend, mm -hmm. a pastor, female. The rabbi, he comes from that struggle of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And I'm coming from the struggle of African-American people. And we're sitting here trying to get to know each other because we believe, although we have differences, we believe that something binds us <laughs> more than us. Something larger than ourselves. Oh, yes. Yes. And that what is now is not fully what God intends. Yes. That we get a taste of now and again, but there will be yes. a time where God's rule. Because we've all seen it. <laughs> we've all seen it in our lives. Yeah. Amen. Thank you. For joining us today at Abraham's Table, this podcast is a labor of love produced by us. Omar Shaheed, Assalamu Alaikum. Rabbi Jonathan Case, Shalom Aleichem, peace on you. And Ellen Fowler Skidmore, peace be upon you. We are grateful for the musical gifts that have been shared with us by Kyle Lovett from his piece, Shofar Worship. You may find that on Spotify. And again, we would love always to hear from you. Questions, comments, topics, how this or if this podcast has been helpful to you, feel free to reach out to us to communicate with us using the following email, abrahamstablesc at gmail.com. From Columbia, South Carolina, we wish you God's peace.